Hey guys, welcome to another TGS podcast. Today we have Alan Musselwhite on, who has just written a new book. Alan Musselwhite, who's been on the channel before, looking at punt guns and anything to do with wild fouling. He is a lifetime wild fowler and punt gun addict. And this book is filled with some amazing stories and some amazing facts for anyone getting into the sport and even those who have been in it for a little while. Go and support him, go buy a copy, but if you don't want to, watch this and you'll want to. So why did you choose to write a book? Well, it's something that I'd never, ever done or never even thought of. I'd I'd done it. um, I'd seen other people do it. Um, I had a lot of a lot of. I don't know, experiences that I used to sort of relay to people. Some of them were very humorous. Some of them were not quite so humorous, but they, um, it was one of the things I wanted to try and do it. Took me about six to eight months to, you know, to, to write it. I kept it to the format that it's in and the page number because I wanted it to be, you know, readable, but not, you know, a case of, well, I'll go fed up reading this now. You know, it was a case oh, it's of. very readable. I, I smashed mine in an afternoon. Yeah, um, and a, a lot of people have said the same to me. They've enjoyed it. They wished it had gone on longer, but that always leaves the door open for a sequel to it, doesn't it? So it's a, uh, it's a, uh, yeah. So uh, where did you start? You start, did you did you write it chronologically, or did you just kind of write down the bullet points you wanted and, and go from there? To be truthful with you, I could have put a lot of stuff. I did write some bullet points down, and then I that changed literally by the day. I, it took me sort of six to eight months over a period of time to, to write it. Um, I put what I thought was the relevant bits and everyone said to me, well, you could have put this, you could have put that. Yes, you could have done, but I tried to keep it as um, entertaining as I could. So that, that, that was my main reason. It's very good. I'm, I'm going to sort of work for it. I again, not want to touch on some of the points in here because, you know, we want people to go and read it, obviously. But I'm going to start at the back with something that really piqued my interest, and that's there's a decoy town. Yeah, uh, basically it was it's, um, it was built by a local builder uh, for the Ministry of Defence. It's uh, basically it's uh, the best way to describe it. It's a place to station fires. They like fires there to deflect the bombers from the um, dockyard in the Second World War. Um, it now has a preservation order on it. I believe there's only two still left in the country, but they, that's why they, they built it. It was solely for um, to deflect the, the German bombers, the Luftwaffe, from bombing um, uh, Portsmouth Dockyard. So that, that's, and as I say, it was um, the, the structure is still out there. You know, it, it's, it's quite a biggish structure, and it was just to show lights other than um, in um, Portsmouth Dockyard. So, and that's one of the reasons why they're the house on Oyster Island got damaged. Well, it took deflection from a bomb that was landed close to it and damaged the roof structure and eventually came down. So, And that's that's the other thing right at the end of the book. There's a whole piece on the Oyster Island, or Oyster House, the old Oyster House. What, was, yeah. what started your fascination with that? I've known about it. If you explain yeah. that to people. Yeah, I've known about it obviously since I was a child. Um, my father and my grandfathers and my uncles, they all used to shoot from it before there was ever a club formed. And uh, it was always re- referred to as Oyster Island. Well, I wanted to find out a bit about it. So I started doing some digging in local um, libraries and newspaper clippings. And it became an obsession in the end. I just spent months and months. Um, I have more details on that family 
um, and their lives and, and what their, they, their lives consisted of and how how long they were owners of that that particular particular island there was a house on there the pictures show that there was a house on there the footings yeah. of the house are still there um it became a real labor of love researching all that it, to the extent that document has been um accepted by uh, the portsmouth library and the historical um department as a, as a true record of, of what happened so it's um you know, do you still, it, uh, so do you have do you still shoot off of Oyster Island or are you not allowed anything? No, we 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 don't. Um we basically decided um that it's not within our area, it doesn't fall within our leases, it's a privately owned island. Um although as I say there is um there are three new owners to that island now. Mm-hmm. Um and because through adverse possession um we were able to uh, basically lay claim to it because there are no existing um f- members of that family left none whatsoever we i've done all the research that I possibly could do there is no one left of that family so as um, as three individuals we have done adverse possession the, the crowd uh, the um, land registry will not issue a title deed to it but unless someone proves otherwise we are the owners of that island so you got your own private island look at that yeah yeah it's um it's one of them things it's it's there it's a fallback thing in in the event that your shooting was not allowed within the harbour um we could shoot from that i mean not that you get the whole club on it it's too small but you know there, there is that and the other thing is well it the, the island is eroding. We, we, the intention is to put some funding to stuff for the island and sort of outer edges. It was eroding away with the tides. So, oh. that, that, and that has conservation value. And I suppose, technically speaking, the fact that there is still a footing of the house on there, I don't know if you'd get outline plan permission, but I, I think you'd have a job to deny it. Well, there might be a nice place to live for a couple of weeks of the year. Without a doubt, it'd be, it'd be lovely. I, I could certainly live there. That wouldn't be a problem. Just <laughs> getting uh, every day. All right. As you can see from, from the history on there, the it was quite a wealthy and lucrative um, enterprise for the family that had it. So yeah. it, was, um, it, was, it was very good. So I've got mine mounted yeah, on. I, I presume there are just no oysters in the bay anymore. Yes, there's still quite a few oysters there. Uh, there was 18 acres. Of, there was 18 acres of oyster beds, and there's still spats that still grow, and you could still go and pick a few oysters from, from there if you wanted to. So it's um, there are quite a few there. Yeah, it was uh, and I'm, 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 not that I'm a great lover of oysters, but <laughs> well, I do, do worry like the quality of that water is not going to be the best, but yeah. probably even worse. But now, now they've stopped the outfall in Langston Harbour. It's now pumped off. To Eastney, then pumped out off into the Solent. The quality of the water in Langston Harbour is so much better. So, I mean, I certainly eat the cockles and the uh, and the shellfish from there. The only thing I don't like is don't eat is the oysters because I'm not a great lover of them. <laughs> I feel like this is like a, a foraging mission. Next time I go out with Nick, I'm going to ask him to take me there. So even if we don't get any ducks, I can get a pail full of oysters. To be honest with you, it'd be well worth doing. It really would. The other thing that's worth doing is off the end of the island in the, in the creek in Russell's Lake. 
you might be better off taking a fish rod and seeing catch a few bass. <laughs> well, we're going to go right back to the beginning of the book now because we kind of gone straight to the end because it was a well, one of my points of interest about there being a fake town. Yeah. Tell me about your beginnings of wildfowling, although it is in the book, but we'll tell people about it anyway. Basically, I 1976, I joined the club. I was... Um, 12 or 13 years old I wasn't very I mean I'd shot up till um, before that would be fired up a little Belgian 410 um, it was uh, I'd done alright and I just shot with my father and my uncle they were both you founder from a members wildfowling wild family yeah they were both founder members of the, of the association that you know Langston Wildfowlers um, and, and, and to be honest with you I used to shoot on Hailing Island um, on some private land over there and the natural progression was to join the Wildfowling Club, and to be honest with you, that was um, that sowed the seed for uh, for the, the experiences I've had over the years, and, and I was able me, enabled me to produce a book as I have. So, yeah, it's um, it's it, unfortunately it's like everything, and I'm sure you found the same. Whatever you tend to take on, it takes over your life a little bit. So, it's. Uh, yeah, I, I, that's where the, the, the starting of the, uh, the, the Wildfowling Club, 1976 I joined. Um, and funny enough, the only time that I sort of withdrew was um, when you meet women. And, uh, yeah, and you sort I, of fear out of shooting or the life. Yeah, yeah, and also I took up motocross racing for, for a period of time as well. So um, it was... Uh, another another chapter in my life, but I've, I've soon went back to the shooting, and I've been back there ever since. So, so how has it changed over time? That's always a, a good question. How has it changed over time? Because you know, you write about falling asleep by the sea wall with a shotgun. I don't think you get away with that right now. No, I, I think that that unfortunately, the, I don't know if it's for the better, but certainly um, the, the, the the geography of the place has changed considerably. Um, there are places now where you've got concrete sea walls. You never had that before. It was literally earth bank sea walls. And you used, uh, used to have stakes that retained the earth. Uh, there's a little bit of that left still in some places, but most of it's sort of, it has changed. Even crossing out to the island um, has become a lot harder. You used to be able to walk out there in knee boots. Now you wouldn't walk out there unless you've got waders on. Um, the, the silt and the harbour is built up considerably. On the islands, on um, North Binnis, in the, uh, one of the islands that we shoot, there used to be permanent hides there. Well, there's no permanent hides now. You, the only hides you take is the, the one that you take out with you. Um, on South Island, South and why, Binnis, why is why is that the hides aren't there anymore? Is that just not allowed? I, or? Think, I think they basically, they, um, they, they fell into a state of disrepair. And with the RSPB buying the land, I don't think they wanted them reinstated. Um, so okay. they were basically removed. On the other island, one of the other islands that we shoot, which is South Binnis, there are three sunken pit hides on there that have been there for some time. But the fact they're sunken, you can't. They fill up on a big tide. But generally speaking, you can you're sitting below the uh, the high or, or even the low water mark at sometimes, depending on the state of the tide. And um, but it's a completely different sensation. You're in the biggest built-up area. You know, on the south coast, and you've sat in the middle of the islands, and you don't see a soul. So it's, it's you know, it's just oh, all nice. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's it's very really good. And unfortunately, um, it was 
it has changed. Development has changed, and, and the area has changed considerably. Funny enough, I was talking to Nick this morning about something that used to be there that's not there now, and it, things do change. As I say, not always for the better, but not always for the worse either. So I think you've got to you've got to move with the times a little bit. True. Well, on that reflection, how have your bags changed since the seventies? Less, more. Uh, uh, to be honest with you, if you if you put the time and effort in, you my bags haven't changed a great deal at all. Um, I still shoot a reasonable amount of duck. Um, I wouldn't overshoot it. Like everything, I I try you know try to use what I have. Even with the when we have a good punt gun shot, I am um, I don't go out straight afterwards. You know to use what I've got because to me that's just you know there's no need for that. It, it's something you know. You, in your own mind, you know what you believe is right and what you know what yeah. you can use is ethical to do. So it's um, but yeah, as I say, it's the bags for me haven't changed. And Nick will argue as for him because every time the geese fly towards him and then on down, then they fly towards me instead. So <laughs> <laughs> he just got um, lucky, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think it's just more luck than anything. But yeah, it's if you put the time and effort in, the bags are still there to be had. Your first punt, there's a entire yeah. segment, in fact, a good third of the book is, did you say a good third? Well, a good portion, a good chapter of the book is dedicated to punt yeah. gunning and punts. Your first punt, tell me about your first punt. How did that come about? Are you a punt gunning oh. family or is that just something that you stumbled upon? My father uh, built a punt some years ago and we used to use it. Um, he never actually had a punt gun. He used to use um a, a big eight bore on there and um, a big long barrel muzzle load eight bore and and that worked to a degree then some years later i um i bought a second hand punt from a friend of mine who, who, who got hold of it and didn't really know what to do with it it was a little bit rotten i replaced some of the timbers used it for a couple of years but with a double timber funny enough it was a sabala timber yeah and, and i had a little jig made up where it fired both barrels together um, oh, so do you, you actually fire in it as a punt from the front of the boat? Well, it was mounted still, and I had a hole through the stock and with a small rope through it. And what I, I used to do, you could put two and a half ounces through each each uh, barrel. So what I used to do, I had this little jig made up on the triggers that pulled both triggers together while on the lanyard. And it was a bit lively, but it was, um. so you put five ounces of shot out. Um, that worked to a fashion. Um I then bought a little inch ball muzzle loader from someone, from a friend of mine, and uh, used that for a number of years. Then I decided I need, or I should say a number of years, for a couple of seasons. Then I decided I was going to build a bigger punt because the punt I, I initially bought was only a single, and there wasn't a lot of room in it. So I um, I bought, the, well, I, I met a chap in Paul, bloke called Sean Adams, and we had some plans to a single punt. I enlarged the, the plans drew it out on some sheets, see that it looked aesthetically pleasing from both ways. I built the punt. I still got that punt to this day, and that was uh, over 30 years ago now. So it's... Um, How many uh, punts have you got now? Four. How many guns have you got? Eight. <laughs> have you got a problem? <laughs> you can never have enough weapons in your arsenal. 100%. And In actual fact... Um, whilst we're here, yeah, myself and Nick have just bought a new punt gun. There's a stock to it, 
it's a breech loader and um well, screw on basically yeah. yeah we've uh, we've used it this year there, there, there's a there's a cartridge for it oh wow and that's a three inch magnum cartridge so you can see the comparison so what what bore diameter um, is that punt gun inches inches three eighths what is your favorite punt gun out of all of the punt guns that you have my favourite is my Clayton, the one that we brought down to the shop that day. Monster. As punt guns go, that is probably the, one of the prettiest punt guns that I've, I've ever seen. And it has a lot of history about it. Hence, I wrote the bit about um, Alfred Clayton and Southampton and Limited in the, in the book. Um, I've done a lot of research on, on him and where he basically came from, where he moved to, how he died. Um, it, it's all within the book. Um, he, he moved into Burnett's premises and took over the shop from there. Um, funny enough, he, he, he buried in Southampton still. Um, but unfortunately, he's not buried in a marked grave. Um, but that's... Yeah, that's couldn't I'm, afford one, I guess. Well, I'm guessing that, as I said in the book, he, he died from a thing called softening of the brain, which we think is probably a stroke of some description. Yeah. Um, he probably wasn't able to work. I think he was 74 or 75 when he died. Um, and I suspect any any monies that he'd made through you know patents and, and guns that he'd built would have been probably, used up. probably had gone. Yeah, probably gone. So... Um, I'm guessing he died. I, as I said in the book, though, he, he owned a vessel, and the vessel is, is a sailing vessel. Um, and it's uh, it, it, very strange. It was still registered in his name a few years after his death. And that's probably because he took the registration out for a, a fixed period, we, we think. Yeah. Um, but obviously that wasn't sold to bury him. If there was any surviving members, I couldn't find any surviving members of his family. There are one or two distant relatives that I've found, but um, that there's, there's not anything that was sort of immediate to him. So. so there's a whole piece on Irish Tom as well. I presume you've had a play with that. Have you ever shot it? No, I've never shot it. We've, we've been up, um, Lee and Nick went up some years ago and cleaned the barrel out and greased the barrel up. I've seen it on many occasions, um, and it, it's an awesome, awesome piece of kit. It's absolutely massive. But better than that is the uh, the Hawker double gun. That is a very, very pretty gun. So, yeah, that is particularly beautiful looking. All right, uh, what is your? Tell me, uh, there's a whole section in here on um, on a few wild fowling stories. Do you want to regale us with with one of them? What is your best experience or best memory wild uh, wild fowling with a punt in a punt? With Probably one of the, 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 the best things that we've done was, um, I think I put in the book, I'd, I'd had a heart attack and I bumped into an engineer in, in hospital and spoke to him about you know making guns and that. And he said that he, he could do it. He had the machinery to do it. So what we've done, we designed a gun. He built it to our specification. And the most favorable it favorable bit for me was when when it was complete to actually fire the thing and and have the london proof house come down to bisley and proof it for us and I, i'm sure you've probably been to bisley it's like um big banks between each each range yeah and then um, we fired it off of a, a motorboat trailer and took the stock off of it as fired by electronic ignition or like a muzzle loader fired by electronic ignition 
we fired it and it cut a big swathe in the bank. We fired both barrels together, mm. being a double. Um, and that was a very, very memorable uh, experience. Then what's the proof master uh, stamp it up with the London proof marks? Because you can imagine there's no punk gun proof in London yeah. anymore because the, uh, I think the sheer um, volume of it. Yeah. You'd probably carry it through the underground, wouldn't you? Yeah, exactly. So it's um yeah, it's I'm very very that that was a very memorable moment. Um, and that that took about about fifteen eighteen months to to make it produce it and and have it proofed. So and uh, I've but had many a co- make a punk gun. Essentially, is what you're saying. If you've got the right equipment and want to get it proofed. Yeah, I mean, basically, I I didn't realise that if you make something like that. You can do. You can make what you like right up to it becomes fireable or, or remotely fireable. Fireable. You can um, then you must register it, and and there's nothing to stop you making a gun. The only thing that you've got to do is make sure that you you know you register at any point when it becomes you know, a firearm. So that that's what we done, and that was before it was ready to fire, and uh, we finished it and. I didn't put a picture of it in the in the book for the simple reason I have so many of them. It's a job to get, <laughs> get them all in. Well, there. I feel like it wouldn't be a bad like it would be a great book. I'd buy that book in a heartbeat. How to build a double barrel punk gun. Yeah. Or, Again, yeah. it's something perhaps for the future. There is um, it it, it really did. It's very very again a very nice looking gun, but it's it's almost a, a small version of um. The, the big Hawker gun, or, or the big uh, Holland yeah. Holland, the double Holland. So it's um, there is a, as I said to you before, I'm I'm very very keen on on Clayton guns, and and that's what I've done the research that I've done. He made two double uh, muzzle load inch and a half punk guns, and uh, they are exceptionally nice looking. I don't particularly, I don't go a lot on the um, the Holland punk gun. For looks, because it's just a big piece of engineering, big piece of ordnance. But the, um, the, the certainly the, the, the Clayton is is a beautiful punk gun. It's a beautiful lines and a nice stock. It's really nice. So it's um, but going back to the other bits in the book, um, yeah, when I, when I, when I said to you that um, it says in the book that you know I bought into an house houseboat in um in Norfolk. Oh yeah, I was going to get onto that. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's one of the, the, the biggest single um, achievements that I'm, I'm pleased about. Um, you know, I bought yeah, into it. an island, just owning a boat. No, and several punts and guns. <laughs> um, now, I, I, I bought into it. We built it. Um, you, again, the pictures are in the book. I didn't show the inside um, because the inside is probably the best bit about it, really. It, it's really quite TV in there. We've got TV, radio, um, 240 electrics, 12 volt electrics, wood burning stove, gas cooker. Um, I mean, there's a picture of it sort of uh, in the book, not on water. I presume that when the tide's in, that will be floating. It does float on the biggest of tides. Uh, and there's only about four or five tides a year that it will float. But you can get sort of six foot of water under it. So, um and as you, I think you can see in the picture in the book, there's a bridge that goes across to it. Yeah. You can't walk from the bank to it, but it's um. Someone referred to it as a bit like Noah's Ark to look at. Um, it's uh. Which a very it might, large well, boat with a very large summer house plonked on top of it. 
is a 27-foot lifeboat. And it was a massive lifeboat, and it put a, something with a seven-foot beam or something on it. You know, so it's a, it's, it's quite large. So how did how did that come about? Did you do, well? It's in the book, to be fair, but you can tell us. It basically, um, I've shot Lynn Marsh for a number of years with a friend of mine. We used to travel up all the time. He lives in Southampton. I lived here. We used to go up once or twice a year. We should have joined um, some years ago, but we thought, well, we only go once a year. We won't join. But in the, in the event, we did join. And when I joined, a friend of mine, we used to go and stay on his houseboat. Um, he used to, he had this other, he bought the houseboat that, that I've now bought him to. And, um, but he'd never built it. They were going to do it. They, they never got around to it. Um, so he said to me, would I like to buy into it, which I did. Um, and then by the time I'd bought into it, within three days, we had it built. And it wasn't finished, but it was built enough that the house was on it, the roof was on it, and it was watertight. So yeah. then over the next, we got it finished. And then before the end of the end of that season, it, we, we stayed on it for the first night. So it was um, it was a really good achievement. And it's just progressed. So do and you shoot from the boat? Is that the way that works? Or you just use the you boat? Could, you could open the door and shoot out the door if you wanted to. Because you're actually on the shooting area. So, yeah, the answer is you could stand on the marsh uh, or on the bridge or on the staging and you could shoot from it. Last year, I took um, took Dan Reynolds up with us and uh, we Dan shot his first pink up there last year, which he'd be very pleased about. Oh, awesome. And we'd had a good widget flight. And last evening, we were stood on the staging basically went for the flight to end so we we're going to go home and then um, from the staging i shot a gadwall off the stage you know flew over the stage and shot it there so and you get geese fly over the boat it's not unusual to shoot a goose i think from the staging um and the other thing is you can stand on the front deck of the, the boat because it's got a little um little front deck metal front that you can stand on there and you, you you know you could shoot I mean, generally speaking, don't we walk out on the marsh? But yes, you you could shoot. If you woke up in the morning pop. or just got home and some geese flew over, you unsheathed your gun and you can have a pop. Uh, yeah, and generally speaking, what we do is we we leave when we're in the boat. We, we might leave the guns on the roof of the boat. Um, so in the event the geese start to fly over, which sometimes they do, you can have a pop at some geese. So it's um it, it's got a really good aspect like that. It's as soon as you're on the the marsh, which is where the boats are, you're within the shooting boundaries. So and there are a lot of boats and you lined up, or is that is it actually not that common? Um, all there is, there's only 21 boats across about eight miles of foreshore, so there's not many. It's yeah. very much a case of um, they're very hard to come by. Uh, the old adage, dead man's shoes, very often that's what I, or, or you've got to be in the right place at the right time to. Yeah, you know, to look like permission to have one of these houseboats. Yeah, yeah. So it's um, but it's certainly the one of the best things. I, funny enough, I'm going up there Monday. Um, social distancing, of course, because um, of course. I'm go- I'm going up on my own, so the, you know, there's no issues with me being there. But um, I should go up and back in the same day. So just go and uh, check it first. Well, I've got a, I've got a, I want to paint the outside. Yeah, I've got to paint the outside. So what I'll do is I'll go up first thing in the morning, um, leave really early, and come back before 
you know, the, the day's open. It only takes me about three hours to paint it. But if I do that, that's um, another job before the start of the season. That's so. it. More shooting time. Exactly. Exactly. So you wildfowled all over the country, really, because the whole segment on Scotland as well. Yeah, we um, I, I only done it for a couple of years. Yeah. Uh, we went up to Lock of Strathbeg, um, a, a chap that was in our club called Bob McCulloch belonged to a syndicate up there, and um, basically the club was offered some some shooting. You know, you obviously paid for by the day, and we went up there. Bob had a house up there. And uh, that was funny for the first place that I shot a pink. Um, we had a, a very good three days. I think we shot, so I think it was 15 geese, three mallard, a couple of pheasants and a woodcock. So <laughs> over a three-day period, long way to go for three days, but it was uh, well worth doing. Uh, no. It was a, a really good experience. But it was a long, long drive. Long, long drive. There's a story about a really unfortunate spaniel in there as well. Yes, yes. It's, uh, it's um, yeah. It, it's just one of them. There is again what I tried to do with the book was to include some some humorous uh, stuff and some um and, and some factual stuff and and I hope I've achieved that. Um, it's uh. I tried to make it so it wasn't too heavy reading, and I'm sure everyone that, that, I've, that I've read it has said the same. They've enjoyed it. They didn't want it to end. No, <laughs> so, I could have done it. Could have done with another another segment. You could have explained yeah. a few well, stories in there. You could have expanded on. But I guess it's the beauty of a little bit of mystery. Probably is the best the best thing. Well, I think that's the other thing. I, I've been asked on several occasions, are you going to do another one because they've enjoyed it so much? And um, the intention might well be a year or two's time to, to perhaps do another one. Um, I enjoyed doing it. And I enjoyed putting some of the, my experiences down to share. Because very often you talk to people and they, they don't always believe you or perhaps they don't always understand you know, what you're talking about. At least that way it gives them some insight as to what did happen. Like the bit, the bit, um, there's a whole section there about shooting with uh, Dave White. Dave was what, one of the big, it? yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's he's uh, he's claimed to fame. It wasn't nowhere he had defecated in the harbour, <laughs> so, but yeah, he, he was, um, again, a, a real nice, but a very, very big influence on me when I, you know, started up shooting again, and um, he, uh, even to this day, funny enough, I gave him a book um, earlier this year, and he, there was a picture of him outside with, when, I, when the books were released. He, was, he got his hold of the book, and you know, there was a lot about him. It, it was, it was very, and some of that was very funny as well. So, and like the the bits in Norfolk with Big Steve Sellers, again, Steve used to set himself alight. He really needed medical treatment, but he was, um, he wouldn't have none of it. <laughs> But yeah, he was. Um, we made him honorary chef because he just. It was quite funny to watch himself. You know, he, he just couldn't help himself. He had to. If it was hot, he had to touch it. You know, it was just one of the <laughs> things. I think. Yeah, I think yeah, there's fetish for hot things. But anyway, that's um. Calamity Jane. Yeah. It's um. But as I say, the book has been fairly well received. Um. I I, I don't know what the um, what the sales on Amazon are. I won't know that till later this month. Um, well, I, say, but, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and at this point, 
if I've, I've already said in the intro, but Wild Fowling Tales, past and present by Alan Musselwhite, is very much worth a couple of quid to go and read and learn and stick it on your shelf for anyone vaguely interested in either wild fowling or big guns. Yeah, and, and again, I, I, I tried to mention um, you know, some of the guns I have, especially the uh, the latest acquisition, the Blanche. Um, yeah. The nine ball Blanche, that's very, very nice. Um, but yeah, as I say, it's it's there and if people you know, want to um, buy it it's on Amazon or you can contact me direct at alanmusselwhiteatsky.com um, I do have some copies here that I will sign as well so uh, yeah, I um, get myself to sign a copy there you go a little bit empty in the front there um, so yeah, I, I will sign talk about was a whole bit about um, there's, a, there's a whole portion in here about steel and lead and you have been using steel and developing and home-loading steel probably longer than many. Longer than many. Mm -hmm. So it would be fair to say that you are educated on the subject. Yeah, I think that's probably a fair, fair good description. Tell me about your findings. Sort of from the very early stuff to what you load now, how you view it in comparison to lead, bismuth, tungsten, that kind of thing. As someone who shoots a lot of steel. I personally... Um, I liked bismuth when it when we when it first came out. It was it was a bit hard and it used to shatter. There wasn't no tin in it. They needed some um, some tin added to it. They took that on board. They'd done that. It didn't work particularly well in a punt gun because their big shot, the BBs and the ones, were two spherical balls that seemed to be moulded at a ridge around them. They shattered. So that didn't work. We used tungsten in a punt after again. If you look at the book, it tells you the trials that we had. Um, but on with a shoulder gun, I'll, I'll be absolutely truthful. People say that um, still doesn't work. Um, it, it maims and cripples more than it, it kills. Well, that's an absolute fallacy. I've used it since you know we've had to use it. There's nothing wrong with still. If you load it, or even the factory loaded stuff is is very very good now. The manufacturers have taken on board the, the um, research and development that people have done and it's I would say it, it's comparable with, with lead if someone said to me would you go back to lead and I'll give you an example I wrote an article in the shooting conservation for the Bass magazine yeah and no I wouldn't go back to lead we, we at this day and age we take all the toxins out of the environment we can we're putting toxins into meat that we're going to eat so to be honest with you the transition with a five-year transition, moving away from lead, that's going to happen, whatever happens, whether it's legislation or whether it's voluntary, it will happen, I believe. You, I can make lead still work equal to lead. Um, you just have to play with the loads. And if you want something a little bit better than what you can buy on a factory load, then you have to really go down the, the road of some home loading and, and some testing. And I know that you tested some cartridges that I loaded up for you and Nick on them, them, them loads. Now, I think the pattern was very, very good. With, with actually, it was only a fibre wad in there. And uh, looking at the video that you've done, I don't think there was a mark in your barrel. Um, no, not at all. And literally, all I'd done was was, was took the the lead uh, the steel cartridge to bits, replaced the shop cup with a, with a fibre wad. The downside to it was it was um it was very hard. To, once it had been loaded to unload it and reload it so it was but if you're doing it from scratch 
there's nothing wrong with steel. Just you don't want to put a steel cartridge through, um, as I said in the book, a Damascus barrel gun because the steel's a lot harder than the barrel. No. That said, you've got um, a lot of guys over in Denmark who are saying as long as you're using like a proper low effort cartridge, they're putting steel through Damascus guns with no problem. You just have to be very yeah. effective what they're putting through it. Yeah, they are. And the only thing that I would say to that is I wouldn't want to take a chance with one of my Damascus barrel guns, but I'm not saying that it wouldn't work because I think it does. And look at all the research that the, the, the Danish have done. It, there's nothing wrong with it. I think what we've got to do is um, we've got to give it a go. We've got to try this transition period. I found it still works as good as anything. I mean, I've shot an, an example. Um, I finished the season last year on a right and a left of pinks. And they were about 45, 50 yards. And regardless of what some people think are, you know, I've heard people say, yeah, I regularly shoot stuff at 70 yards with lead, or I did. And, and I thought, well, they don't know what 70 yards is, because when you look at what 70 yards is, that's a very long way. And I think it's, it's your own perception. You know if it's in range, you know if you can kill it. I shot a right and left with a 10 ball without some 5 eighths of 4 mil steel, and I killed them both stone dead at about 45, 50 yards. So, Which is a damn um, good bird. It is. And, and to take a right and a left out of skein as they come through, it was. And the ironic thing was, again, in the book, I, I put about Chesapeake's. My young Chesapeake dog, and he, he made his first retrieve on some pinks. So I was very happy. So. But he was happy with the first one and less enthused with his second one. I'm yeah. taking that back. Yeah. He, um, I walked out with him because I knew when I didn't, on, on the King's Lynn Marsh, there's some very high. It's not Spartina, it's almost like um, a rank grass, and um, they'd fallen in that. He found one straight away. Then um, I, I went over to pick the other one. He brought that one back to me. I went to pick the other one up, and he picked that up as well. So I was very pleased. So it's, um, yeah, everything last season come together very, very well for me. So, But going back to, let's say, going back to the steel and the non-toxic, um, steel works very well. Bismuth works very well, but it's a it's a bit expensive, but to be honest with you, you've got to you've got to put that against how many shots you're likely to fire. If you're going to use bismuth on a on a float pond of an evening, you might fire 30 or 40 cartridges. Well, you're talking a, a box and a bit of cartridges. So regardless, of, as long as they're not a hundred pound a box, but regardless of what, you know, it's not a vast investment when you think what you spent on a day shooting. So it's um, no. I, I, as I say, I think the onus is on us. To, to remove the toxins from them. And they've removed it with batteries, petrol, paint. Um, it's, it's only a matter of time. And um, we've all been, we've all heard them, um, they, they slate BASC, people slate BASC. Oh, they've given it, well, they've got to bear in mind, with the first transition with Wildfowl and it wasn't BASC. They actually staved it off for a number of years. It was actually something that the government had signed up to. And they're all under the impression that BASC let them down well they didn't they just gave us a proper transition period but yeah as i say i think um if you're going to use um yeah you've got to go through this transition period find a gun and a cartridge combination that works do some pattern testing because most people pick a cartridge up they put it in their gun and they believe well it should work the same as the last cartridge no one ever does any sort of serious pattern testing and that and your onus is on you as an individual, you want to kill your quarry as clean as you can. 
So you need to make sure that your gun and cartridge combination work. I think I remember you saying that a few years ago and me sort of thinking that's a very interesting thing that you believe that even people have to, should, the onus is on them to be a good enough shot to kill their quarry. Without a doubt, I think that's, that is definitely the case. You know, you really do need to make sure that um, what you're using is adequate for the job. Um, but as I say, I've, I've loaded a lot of, um, well, to be honest, with you, I very seldom buy any cartridges um, off the shelf. I load everything for, for mine. Obviously, the, the, the punk gun stuff, I use tungsten. I have just bought um, some 4 mil bismuth from America. It didn't come from America, but initially it was bought in America. And I bought that off a chap. And uh, that was nearly £300 for a 7 kilo tub of <laughs> So, yeah, it's a lot of money at the moment. Well, you say that well, by the time you break that down into a few ounces of load each or even half a pound you're shoving down a punk gun, it's not that bad. It's no, not, it's not. It's, and the thing with it is, it's keeping traditions alive. Even with the legislation and, and the, the things that are put in place, not, not to say to hinder you, but to change the way that we pursue our sport. I think we do it, um, you know, very, very good as, as, as people that do shoot. We do adapt to what the legislation is or, or what's likely to be legislation. People will generally adhere to it. And I think that's what we've, we, we've got to do. Um, you know, we've got to give it a go. And we've got to make, make what we believe is that, you know, the best job we can out of what we've got available to us. And I'm sure in, in, in the shop you probably find that, um, well, Perhaps not now because you've been closed for a few months, but <laughs> people are starting. People are starting to try different alternatives, you know, just to yeah. see what, you know, what the, the variations are. So, yeah, but it, again, the thing we always have to say is you can't just go and shoot a pair of shots. You do need to try it for an extended period of time because it's a yeah. different thing. Um, yeah. yeah, it's very easy to yeah. fall back into lead. Yeah, very easy. Yeah, I, I think as I say, it's again. I tried to touch on most subjects within the book and i think i was able to succeed to do that um but it's um i didn't go into great depths with it but i've done enough that there was you know to give an insight into what did happen and how it came about and you know hopefully that, that covered most aspects for people no i think anybody like i said before anyone who's interested in anything wild fowling or even the history of portsmouth and surrounding area there's there's plenty in there to keep you entertained Plenty of to keep you entertained. Thank you very much for writing it, Alan. <laughs> okay, mate. Um, Thank you very much, mate, Johnny. And I'm glad you enjoyed the book. No, mate. Very, very good book. Thank you very much. It was a great read.